Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Season 3 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. How are you guys doing? I hope you had a great weekend, enjoying your weekend, maybe getting outside in the warmer weather for a run, for a ride. I've definitely been seeing a lot of clients, uh, recreational athletes in my practice lately, training up for marathons, training up for cycling events this spring and summer. So I thought, perfect time to bring on endurance expert, Dr. Sam Impey, PhD, to talk about a relatively new area of research in the endurance world, how your glycogen status impacts your training adaptations. In this episode, Sam shares a brief history of endurance nutrition, defines carbohydrate availability and train low, discusses the adaptations to fasted training, two-a-day sessions, and the sleep low, train low strategies. Sam also shares his thoughts on train low application in team sport athletes, as well as the evolution of this research in this area. This is definitely a topic I find really fascinating because uh, really at both ends of the spectrum, with elite and competitive endurance athletes, you can make significant, significant gains. And of course, in recreational athletes trying to lose weight, improve health whilst training for a marathon or a cycling event, uh, this is definitely an opportunity here for a real home run and to not only improve fitness, but really improve health as well. Terrific. Well, as usual, you can find the links and a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested in more on this topic, then please circle back to season one, episode 27 on heart rate variability, keto diets, and elite endurance athletes with the Prof and Plues, Prof Larson and Dr. Daniel Plues. You could also check out season one, episode 38 triathlons, endurance training, and considerations for female athletes with Dr. Tamsin Lewis, MD, as well as another important topic, which is keeping athletes cold and flu-free. And in season two, episode 44, I sit down with Dr. David Pine, PhD from the Australian Institute of Sport to talk athletes, exercise immunology, and immunonutrition. Amazing. A quick word from this episode's sponsor before we start, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest, mineral-rich ocean water. Collected above natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink tested and improved by informed sport and informed choice. You can use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10 at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.com and defy the norm. All right, let's get rolling. Season 3, Episode 14. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Sam Impey a sports scientist at Mitchelson Scott, supporting World Tour men, women, and continental cycling teams. In addition, Sam conducts research to support performance outcomes at Edith Cowan University. Sam, really appreciate you taking the time today. Hi, Mark. Yeah, great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Fantastic. Well, I can't wait to dive into talking about fueling for endurance training and the, the key role that glycogen plays in this whole story. But uh, before we jump into that, could you tell listeners a little bit more about your background and journey to the position that you're currently in? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, uh, I did my uh, undergraduate master's and PhD at uh, Liverpool John Moores, um, 10 really good years in Liverpool. Um, and kind of obviously with the, the background of uh, practitioners and, and lecturers that you've got working at that institution, guys like uh, James Morton, um, Graham Close, uh, I kind of no. came into the came into the the area of, of sort of sports nutrition um, as I moved through uh, my kind of undergrad program and, and master's program, um, and then yeah, it was the had the opportunity to go and do a PhD with James, looking at uh, 
carbohydrate manipulation around exercise and how that affected uh, some of the molecular markers of training adaptation. Um, and so kind of, yeah, really jumped on the opportunity to do that and, and combine two real passions I had, which was kind of the area of molecular some more uh, kind of practically relevant nutrition interventions. So uh, yeah, I did, did that. And then um, I did a postdoc uh, at, at Liverpool as well, looking at uh, glycogen use during training and uh, to try and match up some of the some of the work that we did with the PhD. Uh, and then subsequently to that, took, uh, took another postdoc in the University of Birmingham, uh, where I looked at using some uh, 13C tracers to measure exogenous oxidation of, of some different carbohydrates. Uh, and now, yeah, as you said, uh, working at uh, at Edith Cowan University, uh, but kind of in a split position between there and uh, and Mitchelton Scott, kind of supporting their their world tour guys. Fantastic. Well, maybe we can kick off this discussion here today by zooming back out to thirty thousand feet and and maybe giving listeners a quick whirlwind tour of the sports science, you know, as it relates to carbs and endurance training over the last you know half decade since the nineteen sixties to give to give folks a bit of a foundation here before we dive into today's uh, topic. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, start off with a really easy question. Only 50 years of research, hey? <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, as you say, probably probably a pretty good place to start. Um, I mean, the, the kind of, I guess, the first real uh, examination of, um, of how carbohydrate or, or specifically glycogen uh, is involved in, in exercise and, and how it, Kind of has maybe effects on on performance was was done back in uh, in the, the mid to late 60s by uh, some of the guys in uh, you know with with Ben Saltine and, and Holtman and Bergstrom uh, and those guys are kind of around 66 67 where they actually took the first kind of biopsies from from skeletal muscle and actually with the intention of of measuring glycogen content so um, and they kind of showed you know a pretty tight correlation um, very early on a very strong correlation between you know muscle glycogen um, and performance or you know the certainly the ability to sustain performance in that guys who had lower muscle glycogen couldn't run for as long as the guys who had higher muscle glycogen and, and they manipulated that by uh, changing their diet as well so yep. um it's, it's kind of interesting though that actually like that that work in terms of its relation to exercise you know was only kind of really started almost almost exactly a hundred years after glycogen was first discovered so wow um, yeah, it's it's kind of a kind of an interesting one. It was left alone for a, a long, long time before, you know, its kind of relation to, to exercise was picked up, and then, you know, from that, it, a lot of the a lot of the papers on it really kind of really kind of skyrocketed. The number of, of papers being published on it, and you know, you have some of the guys like um, uh, like Eddie Coyle, then who worked um, kind of throughout the uh, the eighties, or certainly in the the mid to late eighties. You know, kind of showing uh, how much, you know, what, what the relationship was between uh, the changes in substrate utilization uh, with feeding, kind of, and how that could potentially spare muscle glycogen, and and kind of asking the questions around, uh, you know, how or kind of showing how preservation of muscle glycogen, either by feeding before or during exercise, really seemed to to tie into to beneficial um, performance effects, I guess. Um, uh, and you know that was kind of uh, really fundamental in in starting to drive the the real interest in um, you know looking at uh, the optimum way to to drive things like exogenous carbohydrate oxidation. So mm -hmm. uh, you know in, in the in the late mid to late nineties and, and early two thousands, um, you know you had guys like Askey Eukendrup and um, all of the guys that he worked with, you know really looking at the combinations of, of sugars and the amounts and dose and timing to uh, to provide exogenous sources of fuel in you know hopefully to preserve uh, preserve muscle glycogen and, and you know minimize the onset of fatigue or or you know exercise termination or you know sustained performance so I guess that's kind of kind of where we're getting getting towards where we are now and you know I think a few years ago, they kind of reached a point where um, kind of, you know, after all that research showing that more carbohydrate was good, it kind of naturally reached a point where a lot of the recommendations were to have just high carbohydrate all the time, mm -hmm. you know, before, during and after to, to try and maximize muscle glycogen, you know, 24-7. Um, 
but then you know as as kind of i think a little bit more research was done and, and also practitioners started to get involved kind of around about 2010 you started seeing these slightly more um bespoke recommendations i guess in terms of uh, you know scaling carbohydrate according to body mass for example so we always talk about grams per kilo body mass now mm-hmm. um, and also looking at you know how you should maybe scale the carbohydrate intake based on the sort of intensity um and duration of training so uh, you know like a really good example of that is um uh, louise burke's 2010 paper which i think the title's uh carbohydrates for training and competition so that's a you know provides a really good kind of overview or earlier kind of one of the first examples of how people started to really start thinking about it as maybe being a little bit more specific instead of just you know heaps of carbohydrates all the time i guess absolutely yeah the blanket sort of statement and of course as you mentioned they're you know deliberately training with reduced carbohydrate availability to enhance some of these you know, endurance adaptations i.e. the train low compete high paradigm here is definitely a hot topic in the sports nutrition world uh, at your level and also in the sort of blogosphere if you will or on the internet so maybe we can start off here by could you define the terms carbohydrate availability and and train low uh yeah yeah um i think um the the easiest one to do well easiest one i guess is start with with carbohydrate availability and um i guess what the the definition that the that we put forward um, in, in our um, sports med paper last year was um, we probably say that carbohydrate availability is the the sum of the endogenous, so the the store of muscle uh, and liver glycogen, um, plus the exogenous carbohydrates, so the carbohydrate consumed before um, and during exercise, uh, for example. Um, uh, that's available uh, to kind of sustain the required intensities uh, and durations of training. So it's that combination of what's already inside the body uh, and also what you what you put in, um, you know, in the in the immediate period before and, and during <clears throat> exercise um, that's available for, for utilization. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a pretty simple and, and pretty easy to understand definition of, of what what we what we try to term as carbohydrate availability. Fantastic, and that's definitely one where we're getting some nuance here of of when you go from recreational athletes to you know more competitive recreational to elite, and how um, you know things change in terms of the the amount of carbohydrate needed to really um, perform some of these uh, training bouts. And you know, if we talk about train low, what does what does that mean to get all the listeners here on the same page? Yeah, exactly. So I guess then when we go into kind of train low, I think there's um, this again kind of maybe is comes towards some some nuanced stuff as well. So my definition would be uh, training with a reduced uh, reduced amount of carbohydrate. Now um, the the interesting thing around that is is that that can actually be done in a or looked at in a couple of different ways, I guess. So, um, for example, you could, uh, you know, you could uh, intentionally deplete uh, muscle glycogen and, and liver glycogen, uh, either with a, an exercise bout or by changing your diet. And then uh, in before, uh, you know, a, a specific exercise session and undertake that exercise session um, with reduced muscle glycogen. Um, but actually then if you fed carbohydrate during that session, um, what you're doing is you're not compromising the ability to complete the exercise session because you're potentially f- you're feeding carbohydrates. So even though you have low muscle glycogen availability, you may still have adequate carbohydrate availability because of, of, of what you put in. And then that also works in the flip side that actually if you start a, a, an exercise session with you know relatively kind of medium or, or high muscle glycogen, but the duration is is long enough or the intensity is high enough um, without kind of putting in any exogenous carbohydrates, you can actually reach a state of, of training in, uh, in a low carbohydrate state, even though you started with relatively, um, you know, normal or, or slightly above normal muscle glycogen concentrations. So um, I think when you think about it like that, uh, you actually see that the, there is kind of a slightly more... Uh, there's slightly more nuance to to exactly what train low is than just kind of one one definition per se. So, um, 
and that that was actually summarized kind of uh, pretty well in a, in a paper that um, James and Louise and, and Trent Stellingworth actually published. Uh, to, I think it's towards the back end of last year or early this year. Absolutely, yeah. You, I mean, you did a great job as well in your paper, and of course, uh, Trenton and company in their recent paper. And you know, you discuss how carbohydrate restriction can potentially enhance some of these exercise nutrient-sensitive cell signaling pathways that regulate mitochondrial adaptation. So maybe for the listeners, we can give a, an example here of, you know, perhaps we could start with, you know, fasted training. Can you walk listeners through what's happening at the cellular level and potentially in terms of uh, performance adaptations? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess when, when we look at fasted training, um, this would be the, the context where uh, you'd have um, obviously a low uh, or no um, exogenous, so you're not obviously going to feed carbohydrates before you do a faster training session. Um, but what you'll also have is you'll have kind of relatively low liver glycogen concentration because the the liver su sustains blood glucose. Um, you have a, a you know a minimum minute or a, a you know a minimum dose of of blood glucose that's required to sustain the CNS. So uh, that comes from the liver. Um, but what you could actually have is potentially have a, a high or relatively high muscle glycogen, mm -hmm. depending on, on what you'd eaten the evening before. So th there's already a kind of a couple of a nuances around kind of some of the stuff we were talking about there that, you know, your liver, gly your, um, liver glycogen is likely to be kind of fairly low, but your muscle glycogen could be relatively high. And then if you don't feed any exogenous carbohydrates, then you're obviously kind of creating that sort of low carbohydrate scenario that way. Um, and interestingly, I, I think what you see a lot with fasted training and, and just, just generally in, from, you know, exercising, uh, certainly without, without in, intake of any carbohydrates is that, uh, when the liver is, is low in, in glycogen, you get a naturally get a big spike in, uh, circulatory free fatty acids. So, uh, particularly this is, this is even kind of even more potent when you add the exercise stimulus on top. So, so what you do is you kind of change that um, that circulatory environment. So uh, you get a, a big increase in, in free fatty acids uh, or lipid breakdown peripherally, um, which increases the free fatty acid availability in the blood, um, which can then be uptake uh, taken up and, and used by the by the muscles for for an energy source, assuming the intensity is uh, is appropriate for that. Um, and so by changing the fuel. That the or by changing the contribution of the fuel that the muscle uses during exercise, you then change the way that the uh, muscle adapts to that exercise session. So, in this context, you're increasing the fat utilization during exercise, and what that tends to do is increase the um, gene response for proteins that are involved in fat transport and oxidation, for example. So we see a lot of the the kind of the studies that have looked at fasted training tend to see a, an increase in uh, in the gene responses for um, you know uh, CPT1 and, and beta oxidation uh, proteins, uh, so transport and, and mm -hmm. oxidation of fats as a kind of as an artifact of of shifting the the fuel the predominant fuel that's available for energy um, or certainly that's coming into the cell uh, during during that type of fasted training. So. Um, whether you get kind of um, really, I don't know. I don't know that the uh, the cellular uh, adaptations in terms of like the potency of the stimulus is as great as some of the other kind of typical train low uh, methodologies. For example, it's it tends the severity of the challenge on homeostasis isn't isn't as great as some of the others. So um, the, uh, you know, it's kind of it's not so much of the um, the sledgehammer effect, I guess, is maybe maybe a good way to look at it. But has, it's, that's well said. I had uh, Trent Tellingworth on uh, last season on the podcast, and he was mentioning, you know, in the elite um, Kenyan runners, sort of a traditional thing would obviously be, you know, whether it was by just by um, because it was just easier for them to do in terms of historically. But you know, getting up, having a, a tea or coffee, and going out for, you know long runs, you know, marathon distance training runs uh, in a totally fasted state with just a s small bout of uh, caffeine there. And uh, interestingly, obviously in France as well, um, I'd lived in France in the south of France for a year and, and, and some of the history there around some of the cycling is that, 
Is that a strategy that you would use at the elite level today, or is that sort of a holdover from some of the historical uh, practices from, from the past? Uh, no, I think, um, I mean, you know, it, it's something I've, uh, I'm, I'm still quite a big, big fan of using um, with, uh, with the guys that I work with and, and with other, with teams I've worked with previously. I think, um, I, I tend to think of it as being like, um, it's like a tool you have in your toolbox. So we use kind of uh, periodization of training. Why don't we use periodization of nutrition around that, given that we know you can alter the, the metabolic state and the, the responses of, of skeletal muscle to training by, by manipulating some of the nutrition. Um, you know, I think when you think about it that way, it's kind of, it, it just it just kind of comes back to what, what tools do you have at your disposal to, to bring about the adaptations that you want. Um, and for me, faster training, as uh, you know, as you say, kind of is, uh, is historically kind of quite well understood, um, maybe conceptually slightly misunderstood as to, um, you know, how maybe is best to do it. Um, you know, there can be compromising effects, but for sure, yeah, I think it has, you know, a, a really useful place in, in modern sports nutrition. And is there a certain exercise bout that it's best, um, placed with in terms of, you know, as an in aerobic um, session more appropriate when you're doing that type of facet training? Uh, is it really just a matter of what uh, you're trying to elicit in the athlete? Yeah, exactly right. I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's, it's, it's what you're trying to elicit in the athlete. Uh, for me personally, I think it's kind of good to do your, I guess what you call base aerobic type work with, uh, you can incorporate faster training into that relatively easily. Um, Faster training is one way you can you can actually push intensity a little bit more than you can do with some of the other um, more intense kind of uh, carbohydrate manipulation type strategies. So um, if you just, I mean, you know, as I'm sure you know yourself with, with the guys that you work with, there are some people who just prefer exercising in the morning on an empty stomach. For sure, um, yeah. You know, so if you have guys like that and actually they want to, just get up and have some coffee or some water or something and, and go and do a, uh, you know, an interval type session, as long as it's, you know, not going to be probably in excess of 45 minutes, to maybe even an hour um, of, of higher intensity work. Then, and if that suits them, then, you know, maybe that's a, that's a good way to do it. And, you know, you can maybe support that with, with some protein or, or that kind of stuff. And Sam, if we zoom out a little bit here to sort of the recreational endurance athlete who's also oftentimes trying to lose a bit of weight and improve uh, some dysglycemia or dyslipidemia you know is there a do you have a preference in terms of of you know adding in potentially more fasted training for these types of folks or, or not being afraid of it in a sense to help elicit some of those gains or is that again specific to the to the individual yeah absolutely i mean personally i i think um yeah, I think it really has a, a really useful place. Um, I think there's some kind of, depending on on the the type of person, there's probably uh, uh, there's so if you have guys who are who are not like kind of categorically unfit, but uh, you know, kind of fairly sedentary and somewhere between, kind of slight, right? <laughs> yeah, like kind of you know um, slightly overweight and that kind of stuff, then. Um, I think just, you know, going from doing nothing to doing something, you're going to get huge effects, whatever you do. But as you say, with the with the slightly more kind of recreational active groups, I think that's where you start to see benefits of, of you know, kind of putting in slightly more specific, um, slightly, you know, more contextual uh, things like fast training and that sort of stuff. So, um, and, and in that context, I think that, yeah, you, you know, you, there is a real benefit to um, to doing faster training. I know there was a, um, a study. Must excuse me, I can't remember the name of the first author, but I know they did. Um, they had guys uh, do like a hundred minutes of um, aerobic work every day, and they had one group do it all in the morning, one group do it all in the evening, and one group do fifty in the morning and fifty in the evening. And and the um, the groups that the group that lost the most amount of fat was was the group that did their hundred minutes fasted in the morning. So, um, I, you know, I'm, it's not it's only one study that kind of comes to mind, and you know, I'm sure there's there's plenty of arguments to do do it the other way. But you know, for me, I think you you create the the right 
the right metabolic environment, excuse me. Um, and, you know, it's not a, a, a huge deviation in, in people's lifestyles to, to, to get up and, and, and go and do it so much as, as maybe trying to introduce a completely new exercise or, or that kind of stuff. Terrific. Yeah, definitely. Very, very well said. And, you know, if we look then at a different strategy, um, you know, in terms of two-a-day training, you know, back to that sort of elite endurance athlete, how do things change with respect to glycogen levels and cellular adaptations when we look at athletes performing two-a-day sessions? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting one. So um, I guess the, the first real indicator uh, or the first real study that's set out to look at um, kind of intentionally using twice-per-day training to manipulate or as the potential to manipulate um, training adaptations was was done back in in 2005 by um, a Bank Saltines group and and the, the first authors Hansen. Um, so they had they had, they used a like a classic Copenhagen model. So it's like a, a leg kicking exercise, um, and they kind of really showed that actually if you intentionally do sort of 50% of your training, so the second session of the day, uh, you know, with with low glycogen availability they got uh, an increase in kind of some of the enzymes involved in uh, in beta oxidation um, as well as uh, the content of cox proteins the, the some of the mitochondrial proteins and and they saw an improvement in performance now that's obviously in leg kicking and not a you know necessarily a, um, a true artifact of of, of what a, what elite athletes do mm-hmm. um, and so uh, you know from a from a cellular perspective, I think you're uh, by doing twice a day training, you're increasing the it's it's a way to increase the stress on the second session is maybe a, a good way to think about it. And so, what you want to do is perturb homeostasis as as relatively as as much as possible. And actually, by creating a, a, an additional metabolic stress by reducing glycogen content, it's a it's a way to do that without requiring any further. Um, you know, intensity or duration, um, or you know, additional mechanical stress that you'd have to create uh, if you did it um, in a in a state of you know of high muscle glycogen, as it were. So um, wh- when you look at it that way, you kind of go, okay, well, it makes sense. But there are a couple of caveats to that. In that, you know, you, you kind of traditionally and and typically you always see uh, compromised absolute training intensity. So. You need to be pretty strategic about what the type of second session is going to be. So, mm-hmm. ideally, it would be kind of higher intensity work in the first session, and then maybe lower intensity and a more sort of um, sustained kind of you know base aerobic type session for the second one. So, because you don't want to compromise the the quality of the training. So, if you can if you can fit that into uh, to your program. And and then you know you want to use it that way, then then that's great, and you can create, as I said, that additional metabolic stress by reducing muscle glycogen. But the, the other thing to to kind of take away from that is is that actually, well, it's it's kind of difficult to necessarily to pick out whether that stress is purely from reducing or having reduced muscle glycogen. Um, it could also be like a, an effect of energy deficit, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you also have the the kind of compounding effects of well, you're actually stacking exercise sessions, training sessions in in pretty co- close sort of temporal proximity, um, and so you're you're naturally going to have altered the environment that you start the second session in, um, even if you are in a you know. Uh, in addition to being in a, in a lower glycogen state. So um, it, it's kind of, it's still quite difficult to pick out, you know, exactly uh, what the what the driving factor between those uh, enhanced, uh, certainly, you know, cellular, cellular effects are. Um, and, and it's, you know, for me, that's, I, you know, I, I like it when I, when I hear people say that, because that, that to me says, that's a great reason to, you know, to do more research on this topic and Absolutely. To, you know, really look into it. Yeah, it is fascinating stuff. And, and, you know, that idea, as you mentioned, of that initial training session being more of a high intensity session, following that with sort of protein meal with dietary fats and, and limited to no carbohydrates. So that that second session, you're starting with that low muscle glycogen availability and, and of course, 
doing an aerobic session on the back end of that and being able to then elicit some of these adaptations. And as you so rightly mentioned, you know, is it the carbohydrate? Is it the energy deficit? Is it the stacking of the sessions back to back that's eliciting some of this? It is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. And if we dovetail into, you know, another type of, of strategy here, which is the sleep low, train low strategy, could you, sure. uh, which is a whole other um, area here, could you define this strategy for listeners and, uh, you know, once again, discuss how things shift here with this type of train low strategy? Yeah, for sure. So I think this is kind of, I think we've probably gone through, um, uh, I think we've probably gone through maybe the, uh, you know, I mentioned kind of fasting is the sort of uh, the least uh, sort of intense uh, intervention. I think mm-hmm. twice per day training is pretty tough. And then I think sleep low, train low is your, is your kind of your sledgehammer, your, you know, your, your hardest level in, in my opinion anyway. Um so, and this is where, so what you do is you would intentionally lower muscle glycogen um, in the evening of the first day. However, you did that with, um, you know, either interval session or an extended um, extended training session. So the idea is to, to really bring muscle glycogen down pretty low. Uh, you then have a, a kind of protein-only meal, maybe some, uh, you know, as well, maybe some, some dietary fats and some fiber, that kind of stuff. Um, and try and rehydrate a little bit. Uh, then you go to bed, and then you get up in the morning, and then you do uh, a, a fasted session. So, uh, or a uh, you, you train without having had any carbohydrates uh, again the next morning. Um, and so, what this does is, if you think about um, the duration, the time duration that you're in a, a low glycogen state with with twice per day training, you're maybe in a low glycogen state for um, you know maybe two to five hours. Um, whereas with sleep low, train low, what we're doing is put you in, in putting you in a low glycogen and, and low energy state for, uh, you know, maybe closer to 12 to 18 hours. So we're, we're extending that energetic stress prior to starting the, the second, um, the second exercise session. So, um, and this, um, this kind of tends to have, a. a a lot of the same effects. Uh, we see a lot of the same responses that um, that you see um, with with faster training and with uh, twice per day training. But um, certainly, uh, I think the uh, the responses uh, and it's it's using uh, sleep methodology that's uh, that's had the the biggest impact or the biggest translation into uh, through into performance effects, for example. So. Um, there, there's some, there seems to be something about um, the way that it's manipulated uh, that kind of seems to translate better into performance outcomes than than the twice per day training or, or the faster training, for example. So, um, y- you know, there's 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 well, there's a whole load of possibilities as to what it could be. Um, so, you know, and I think that's, that's probably another uh, two or three hours of podcast <laughs> to, uh, to get into that one. So for sure. And I was going to say, just to kind of dip our toe into that, uh, you know, is it the absolute amount of glycogen deficit then? I mean, obviously you guys have proposed the glycogen threshold hypothesis. Is there something there with, with reducing muscle glycogen, of course, liver through the night with the fasting that's, that's impacting this or, or where can you comment without, uh, making too deep of a rabbit hole for us here <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah um so i mean the yeah the as you mentioned the the glycogen threshold that we that we proposed was kind of based off um <clears throat> when we went back and looked through uh, a lot of the literature um or all the literature i should say actually that that had been done where um researchers had manipulated glycogen availability and um, prior to exercise or, and had, had matched guys either, you know, some sessions high, some sessions low. We, we kind of looked at, uh, where the, uh, where the, where the glycogen values were that we tended to see those, those augmented responses and, um, whether that was looking at, at signaling kinases, uh, whether that was looking at, um, the, uh, increase in, um, Cox proteins or PDK4, uh, gene transcription, or, or actually whether it was also looking at kind of some more fundamental physiology, like um, things like calcium release um, and the activation of um, 
you know, things like P70S6K involved in, in protein synthesis. Um, what we actually tend to see was that uh, a lot of these uh, responses that were associated with training in, in or yeah, with, with training in a in a, a low glycogen state tended to fall within a, a relatively narrow window of, of absolute muscle glycogen. So, um, yeah, what we tended to see was that once you got below um, 300 millimoles, uh, uh, that's millimoles of glycogen per kilogram of muscle mass um, measured at dry weight. So you sometimes see wet weight reported and, and dry weight reported. This is, uh, we converted all of it to, to dry weight for for. that actually between, once you got under 300 millimoles and, and down to about 100, um, was where most of these kind of um, augmented physiological and, and cellular responses tended to happen. So it was kind of, yeah, it was really interesting that actually across, um, you know, kind of 15 years of research, uh, when, when we picked, picked back through the data that it was, it was pretty consistently um, kind of within this, within this region. Um, once you get below 100 millimoles of muscle glycogen, that tends to be the point of fatigue. There aren't many people who can uh, who can push below that. That seems to be a pretty consistent cutoff. Um, you'll you'll kind of generally speaking, if you see higher VO2s, you might be able to see guys who get down to um, you know kind of 80 or 60. Um, but generally speaking, 100s are a pretty consistent cutoff for for the maintenance of. Uh, of exercise so um but yeah between that between those two those those two figures so the kind of upper level being 300 and, and the lower level being 100 millimoles of glycogen um we we consistently saw these you know these augmented responses so um that kind of what drove our idea of of this you know potential um the, this glycogen threshold so this this kind of window uh in which if you can spend uh, you know a, a portion of your training inside this window that we actually believe that you'd get these you know augmented responses yeah it's incredible uh, incredible insights and of course you, know, you mentioned the critically low post exercise being that 100 millimoles is, is there if someone doesn't have access to a lab you know is there some practical way that they could whether it's symptoms or exercise know if they're approaching that sort of threshold or is that something that they would need to have some uh, testing done to be able to to determine um the the simplest answer is no <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um yeah i mean it's uh, this is i guess the this is i guess probably the the reason that this area is um it is very difficult to uh it's very difficult to research because you need to take chunks of muscle out of people so um it's very difficult to research in elite people for that reason um but it's also why it's probably pretty difficult to um begin to apply without having like a, a you know a pretty deep understanding of um the glycolytic demands of your sport and and the kind of nutritional habits and and the nutrition of your athletes um uh, so yeah it's i mean to answer your question, like if you get down to a hundred millimoles, like you'd probably know because you'd be a horrible person to be. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so it'd be yeah, pretty tough you, to keep going and. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like if you're if you're getting RPEs of of eighteen and nineteen without much of an increase in heart rate, um, you know, you're for a, for a minimal a minimal increase in exercise intensity, like perceptually, like if you're really kind of pretty cooked then you're probably not far off um that is not my sound but you know just <laughs> just anecdotally from uh, from where we've done this in studies that's that's what you see um but kind of you know doing it um doing it practically and, and how you apply this i guess um that that at this stage uh, you know i don't i don't think there's any um i don't really think there's any uh, you, you know, solid technologies out there that allow us to non-invasively measure muscle glycogen. Once, once we can do that, um, you know, it'll certainly open up a lot more, uh, a lot more doors and avenues to to make this applicable. Or, you know, maybe we'll have a much better grasp of, you know, maybe actually this doesn't work and it's just an artifact of something else that we were doing, and you know, we we just kind of slightly missed the goalposts there, but. 
you know, I think that's uh, that that's the interesting thing. I think you have to be, uh, you know, open about all these questions and uh, you know really be be honest about what we can comfortably and um, and convincingly do at this stage. You know. Yeah, that's uh, that's terrific. And and Sam, for for listeners who aren't as familiar in this area, you know, we've been talking cyclists. If they're a, a runner or a marathon runner. With this type of fueling strategies, would they apply as well to these folks? And then also another question that dovetails there is around team sports. You know, what are some potential applications here in team sports? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, uh, look, Trent Stellingworth published a a fantastic uh, review, uh, sorry, um, case study of kind of carbohydrate periodization in in three elite marathon runners uh, back in 2012. Um, which is a, a really, really excellent, um, excellent review, uh, excellent case study. Excuse me. Um, so, you know, I think when you look at that, as well as looking at um, kind of some of the supernova projects that Louise Burke's running in, in race walking, um, I don't think that any that you know this this just holds true in you know although most of the research has been done in um, in cyclists and and triathletes, but you know obviously using um, using the bike component of triathlon to, to measure some of the outputs. Um, so, you know, I think when you, <clears throat> I think when you look at that, there's probably huge application, certainly in, in most, uh, linear energetics, I guess would, would probably be the, the easiest way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, you know, there's clear application there for sure. Um, as you say, when you move through to, um, when you move through to team sports, it, it becomes a lot more interesting. I think this is, it probably becomes a lot more complex as well, which is cool. So um, you have, obviously, within team sports, you obviously have a greater diversity of um, physiological characteristics, even within the same team, for example. So uh, like my background's rugby, so I, I kind of always gravitate towards that and think, well, if you've got a 130 kilo prop forward uh, versus a 90 kilo winger, their physiological characteristics and their what determines their capacity to be very good at their sport are are two very different things Mm -hmm. so when you look at it like that you then go okay yeah actually periodizing carbohydrate in that context is now even more important to take it into an athlete specific recommendation as opposed to uh, any kind of general recommendation you know Um, but, uh, but I think it's it's definitely applicable I mean fundamentally you're manipulating energy availability so that obviously has immediate impact on, um, you know, uh, uh, looking after body composition or, or body weight, for example, just, just straight off the bat. And then, you know, hopefully if you can, if you can dial in, uh, some additional sessions to, to maybe boost, um, some of those, those adaptations from an aerobic perspective, then, you know, I think that's great as long as it, it fits within the context of Absolutely. And, and, and Sam, obviously a term that's used now synonymously with elite endurance exercise is that idea of fuel for the work required. And a great quote from your paper reads, the question that emerges is not how much an athlete can supercompensate glycogen stores, but rather does the athlete's diet contain enough carbohydrate to maintain training intensity while also creating a consistent metabolic milieu conducive to facilitating training adaptations? Now, we've sort of been talking about this throughout this entire podcast, but this might be a nice way to kind of sum things up for listeners. Can can you sort of summarize or unpack that statement a little bit for listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, um, you know, this this actually came from um, this idea was that we're, you know, we certainly weren't the first ones to uh, to make this observation. You know, I, I need to, uh, I think it says, it says that in the paper as well. So we, we actually came across a, um, a paper from from 1981 by um, by Sherman and, and colleagues there, and um, they actually looked at, uh, at half marathon running, um, and they did a, a glycogen loading protocol prior to that. Um, so they had guys either do like a real high and extended duration glycogen load, or do like a kind of uh, a more tapered uh, medium approach, and then just a shorter uh, shorter load at the end and um, Kind of what they noticed actually was that uh, even though they had some guys start with, um, so I'll give you the context because we were talking about millimoles of glycogen before. So um, the guys who did this real high sustained carbohydrate load started this half marathon with with 800 millimoles of, of muscle glycogen. So that's getting pretty close to the the upper limits of of what's you know 
what's been reported in the literature as uh, as being possible to to store. Whereas they had uh, another condition where they had uh, a group of guys who um, started with like 625 millimoles, so you know a considerable reduction, um, but still uh, you know a, a good amount of muscle glycogen. Uh, and actually, what they saw was that um, they ran. They both ran about 83 minutes for a half marathon. And actually, the the guys who were in the who started with 625 millimoles actually ran a, a little bit quicker than, although not statistically significant, but actually ran a, a little bit quicker than the guys who started with 800 millimoles. And uh, and that's kind of where, the, you know, they, in that paper, even back in 1981, um, they made that observation that um and there's a there's a quote in the paper that um kind of says something like um you know there's uh, anything above a minimum level of muscle glycogen may be unnecessary um for specific exercise durations and intensities and so you know when when we come back to when we come back to that and you know we kind of go well actually yeah you know do we do we need all this glycogen all the time and maybe by uh, by overcompensating it, you know, maybe we're dampening some of those some of those effects, and um, you know, maybe maybe it's about if we can tailor it and make it more specific, then you know, maybe we're onto a more of a, an appropriate way to to fuel our athletes. Incredible, incredible stuff. That uh, yeah, for almost forty years ago, they were um, putting their finger on some of this stuff. is is really really fascinating, and and, and Sam. You know, where do you think, in terms of elite performance here, you obviously work in elite endurance uh, performance, you know, what's the evolution of research in this area um, over the next five or ten years, do you think? Yeah, that's, um, that's it's a super interesting question. I think, um, I mean, uh, personally, what I would like to see is, um, you know, someone, well, people looking at, um, at the at graded, um, if we can grade, uh muscle glycogen levels starting prior to exercise so um you know if you could find a way to have guys begin exercise with 200 millimoles then this you know a week later we could start them with 400 600 800 whatever uh, and and see if we can pick out if there is a you know if, if you do actually see these augmented responses with um you know with with differing levels of muscle glycogen to try and unpack um you know is there a is there a glycogen threshold i guess that would be for me that would be pretty interesting um i kind of along with that as well i think there's uh you know a whole load more needs to be done on how you apply carbohydrate periodization with athletes so um you know there's some there are some kind of uh, there's some work coming out from the the supernova projects where they show how um you know how they actually manipulated uh the, the carbohydrate around training and, and and that's obviously great and that's that's one way of doing it but you know maybe there are you know maybe there's actually four or five different ways to um, manipulate glycogen strategically or manipulate carbohydrate or or energy availability strategically around training that will elicit more or less beneficial effects and that's probably sport specific as well so um, you know it would be awesome to see kind of people producing um, case studies or case reports on of of how they've actually applied this in different sports and and how those uh, you know what those outcomes were for example so um, you know I think that's kind of immediately uh, you know a real uh, kind of um, I think there's also things like particularly when you get up to the elite level certainly or you know these guys with real high VO2 maxes is that a lot of the the research and a lot of the molecular biology that that's been done on it has been based on on looking at mitochondrial biogenesis. But mm-hmm. ac- actually, it's it's you know once you get above um, a fairly kind of uh, critical VO two max level, then actually um, you know mitochondria the the capacity for your skeletal muscle to hold mitochondria is is pretty limited. So you're not really going to be building any more mitochondria per se. So um, a, a lot of the you know, the kind of transcription factors and transcriptional co-activators that are uh, involved or measured in, in looking at these from a, a mitochondrial biogenesis perspective are actually involved in in the targeted um, degradation of, of mitochondria by autophagy, so, so what's called, what's termed mitophagy. Hmm. So actually, maybe in that context, what we're looking at is more 
the degradation of uh, less functional components of the mitochondrial reticulum and then the synthesis to replace those. So maybe it's actually a function of mitochondrial quality as opposed to just more mitochondria per se that's manifesting a training response. Um, again, that's just entirely speculation on my part, but I, you know, I think it'd be super interesting to, to kind of see how, how that avenue maybe develops over the next few years as well. So, you know, maybe, maybe we don't just need to measure an increase in stuff all the time. Maybe it's more about measuring the quality of what we have and, and that'll tell us more about the effectiveness of our interventions on improving performance. Yeah, that's uh, really, really, again, fascinating stuff. Uh, obviously, seemingly highly plausible as well. That idea of quality would, would be uh, so important. Um, so, Sam, I really appreciate you carving out some time today. This has been fantastic. Um, terrific insights, as usual. You know, where can people stay connected with all your terrific work and uh, keep up with your research? Uh, well, yeah, thank, thank you very much. It's, it's, it's been cool to be on. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter, um, at Sam Impey underscore, um, is, is, a, a, I kind of use that for, for a lot of the work stuff. Um, and then, yeah, I'm on, on PubMed and, uh, ResearchGate as well. So, um, those probably the, probably the best places to, to find me and, and get hold of me. Fantastic. We'll definitely include those links and some of the papers we discussed here and the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again, Sam, for coming on. Thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Sam or want to leave a comment on today's episode, you can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And of course, if you enjoy the show, take a minute, subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. And be sure to send out a tweet, post on Facebook, or share to your Instagram story to share more of Sam's terrific insights here today. Thanks again, and we'll see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.